0: Dog bless you, festering endas. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. It is hauntingly chilly in Limerick City. It's below freezing, with a ghostly, thick, low-hanging fog. The type of weather that'd make you stay out of a graveyard. I'm going to keep the introduction short this week, because i got quite a long podcast. Quite a long, fun-filled podcast for you. I had a very interesting conversation with Professor Eva McLysett, who was a geneticist at Trinity College, above in Dublin. She's a professor of molecular evolution. She's also incredibly funny and sound and a magnificent science communicator. She speaks about genetics as an expert, as a professor, in an incredibly accessible way. I chatted to her a couple of months back in Vicar Street. It was a fantastic gig. Every single person in the audience was just absolutely focused in silence with a look of sheer wonder on their faces because this conversation about genetics was so captivating and interesting i don't know much about genetics or biology but i'm really curious about it so it was an absolute treat for me and even though i'm chatting with a professor this is actually an unbelievably silly podcast so i'm gonna go straight into the chat you know i love my vicar street gigs i adore them i always do my vicar street gigs on a monday or tuesday night Cause that's the night that no one else wants. But for me, the energy, the crowd energy of a Monday and Tuesday night is absolutely perfect for my podcast. Because what I like to do up on stage is to have a conversation. To have a conversation with my guest. Like we're in a kitchen. And then for the audience, it feels like going to the cinema or being at a play. And if you're up in Dublin, I'm back in Vicker Street this month. Uh, again, a Monday and Tuesday gig. On the twenty-second and twenty-third of January, down to the very last tickets, and I have magnificent guests lined up. So here's the conversation I had with Professor Eva McLysaght, all about genetics. So I was trying to not talk to you backstage because yeah, I was no. getting I was getting too curious.
1: It was very difficult.
0: Yes, um, <laughs> I met you years and years ago um, on Science Week, yeah, and we'd so much crack, and I've just got loads of questions about genetics, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm what the okay, the best way to start. Who knows who doesn't know what genetics is? All right, good.
1: Everybody knows. Um, Fantastic.
0: Is is I'm, I, I, I can go straight to the heart. I'm stuff gonna then. say something right, and then you can tell me if I'm talking out of my arse. Okay, is it true that like, like, de- like, let's just say a human was a building, right. Mm-hmm. That DNA is like the architect's plans for that. But actually, let's take the architect out because that means God. But like DNA is like... My DNA is like how blind boy replicates himself and grows. Like The ear that I have now, right? Yeah. That probably wasn't the same ear I had in 2013. Is that correct?
1: You mean in terms of the cells renewing themselves yeah, or like, something like, like the that? Ear,
0: like if I, was, I was on the stage in Vicar Street 10 years ago did I have a different ear then, like literally, like seriously?
1: <laughs> no, I don't think you did. I mean, the certain cells, human cells don't renew themselves. That's why Which ones? Certain in, well, there's lots of injuries you can't recover from. Like if you chop off the top of your finger, okay. it won't grow uh, back. But you can cut your skin and it'll heal. So there's, there's a limit to the... But um, in terms of what you were asking, like is the, uh, is the DNA kind of the blueprint to the building mm-hmm. or the architect's plans? You, could kind of say that people say that sometimes but some maybe a better uh, analogy is like it's a recipe so mm. if you have a recipe <sighs> for a cake you don't get the same cake every time but you get you know more or less the same cake because wow. genetics isn't quite as as perfect as as a blueprint
0: um did you ever hear of uh, DARPA um, D-A-R-P-A, it's, it's like the American government's advanced scientific research thing.
1: I, I kind of heard of it, but I don't know what it is.
0: Um, just because it came into my head. So I, I love looking at the, the DARPA website because it's literally like, it's what the American government and the military are spending billions on into researching. And I love looking up the things they're doing. And one thing they're building at the moment is a type of concrete that regrows itself. Wow. You haven't heard about that? No. How does it work? I, I'm assuming they're... No, <laughs> I'll not, ask you. <laughs> but it's not conspiracy. Like, it's yeah, there. Yeah. You can see it. This is something they're... Like, drone technology would have been... DARPA would have been doing that in the yeah. 1970s, you know? I, I reckon they're probably looking into... Like, if you've got concrete, right, a block, and then it breaks, but that concrete's able to grow back itself.
1: So it has living matter in it rather yeah. than...
0: It sounds yeah. to me like... Um, I don't know, if you cut off a plant... Actually, why does this happen? If I've got a plant and I cut off one branch, why do two branches grow back?
1: Well, it depends where you cut it, actually depends where you cut it on the branch but um plants are much more versatile in terms of like you know their shape than us so it's actually an interesting comparison because you know like i say if you cut off your finger nothing grows back mm-hmm. but if you cut off parts of a plant it'll something will always grow and if you there's lots of ones like if you accidentally expose some of the root mm-hmm. to the sun a new uh like stem will grow and things like that so um you know, maybe this is not what you're interested in, but like the. I mean, in <laughs> but like no, that's one of the things in terms of genetics that you can basically you can the compare and contrast can be pretty useful, and um, so you know people try to understand how does development work in a human body and trying to understand because it's relevant to kind of repair and mm-hmm. recovery and things like this. How do how does how does how do things heal? And there are animals that can regrow limbs and things like that, and then you can contrast that with you know something very different like. Plants that you can cut them and they grow in all kinds. They they do regrow, but yeah, in a different shape. But
0: actually, didn't like the field that you're in, didn't that start with some monk who was growing beans? Yeah, it did, didn't it? Yes, mental, yes, yeah,
1: peas, but yeah. Um, same thing, but yeah, it was he understood like some of the really early things of genetics. It was quite fascinating what he was able to and figure out. And when was
0: this? Was it like
1: that was he was a contemporary of Darwin, but they didn't know wow. he, Darwin didn't know about him, and uh, everyone knew about Darwin because Darwin was super famous. But so um, Mendel's. Would have had his 200th birthday this year mm-hmm. if he had been able to live. So that's how long ago it was. Um, Do you reckon
0: he was doing that with the peas so he could make himself to live that long?
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think he was actually quite a humble person who was really, really curious. And um, what he did was, you know, he did all these crosses with pea plants. I think people mm-hmm. who've studied genetics in school probably came across Mendel, but not every- or biology in school. But, um, you know, he did these pea crosses and, um, you know, we're just told this story, you know. The short version is he did this and he figured out kind of there are genes there, there's something that gets passed on. But actually the the intellectual leap he had to make to figure that out is really very extraordinary.
0: And why, like, humans have been breeding animals like fucking for ages, right? Why did it take until Mendel for him to go... I think this is what's happening.
1: Because people, what Mendel understood basically, um, people understood that something gets passed on, but they didn't understand how it gets passed on at all. And what Mendel understood was that they were essentially uh, particles that don't get blended. People thought of it before like mixing paint, you know, so that you mix it and it's all mixed and you can't unmix it. But one of the things Mendel showed is you can unmix it because you can have, you know, you can have, uh, you know, tall plants and mm-hmm. you can get small ones out and you can, and, and vice versa depending on the way on the trait you're looking at and um whereas if you're mixing paint you just keep adding more in and eventually you've got a muddy brown and you're never going to have anything else and so even like say darwin didn't understand this properly and um they he kind of had the mixing paint view of things you just put things together and you had the two parents and the offspring are some kind of mixed average of it so Mendel's work showed that you have these discrete things that are genes, which we now know mm-hmm. are pe- on pieces of DNA, um, but that they stayed separate and they don't just become stuck together and permanently muddled.
0: Um, and you said there that like, so like DNA is like the recipe. Is, is cancer when the recipe gets fucked up?
1: yeah partly yeah yeah so um basically cancer is you know you have a uncontrolled cell division Mm -hmm. and there are lots and lots of genes whose job it is to keep cell division going right and that means there's lots and lots of different things that could go wrong basically and any of those or many of those can lead to cancer
0: and like radiation that can change genes yeah like how does that work
1: Basically because the DNA is just, um, like it's a big long chemical, it's, it's a big long sugar actually, and um, the radiation just is, it creates a kind of chemistry reaction, a chemical reaction wow. that changes a bit of it, and um, it's just so much easier to break something than make it better, so those changes are more likely to, to break something and stop it working properly.
0: And your area is more into, we'll say, animals than humans, Did you find any cool shit in in Chernobyl? (laughs) Um, Like surely you're looking at Chernobyl and the animals um, at Chernobyl. I
1: haven't done that. I don't know what's been done there. Like, Part of the problem with Chernobyl is that it was such a huge amount of radiation Mm -hmm. that it would kill them before, you know, Mm -hmm. because there's a certain dosage of radiation that can change your DNA without killing you. But I think that Mm -hmm. was just such a, there was too much death there, I think.
0: But now Chernobyl is being considered like this, massive rewilding project. Like, humans have gone, and there's animals there yeah. going, this is great.
1: Yeah, it's kind of mad, isn't it? I mean, it is, it's... Um
0: Did we predict it wrong? Because at the time, people would have thought, this place, would we will never, never see life here again. again. And now it appears to be thriving. Like, people can't go near the core of the reactor, but you're seeing wolves and deer and butterflies. Yeah. And they appear to be healthy.
1: They do, yeah, yeah. No, I mean... There's must be still radiation there because that's the like the half life of radiation, mm-hmm. um, but they are obviously surviving through it. Yeah, I mean it's um, there probably is a good deal of mutation, but I don't know how much it is. Yeah, but it's kind of cool the rewilding thing.
0: Um, I want to ask you about some mitochondrial Eve. Okay. Which, as I understand, is like they call her Eve because Adam and Eve, yeah. but like it's it's the earliest human. Why is it might or can? Why is it the the mother's DNA the most important thing when trying to find early humans?
1: Basically, because we could essentially. So when you're trying to trace DNA back through generations, like so, the DNA you have is going to be you know half from your mother, half from your father, and the DNA you got from your father will be a mix of his two parents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And so it gets very muddled very quickly, and it's really hard to trace patterns because everything gets like scrambled together at every generation but the thing that doesn't get scrambled is this small bit of DNA that's inside your mitochondria in your cells. So mm-hmm. these are people who did biology would have been called, they would have been called the powerhouse of the cell or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know they got this small bit of DNA of their own, and this only passes through the maternal line. So wow. you get them from your mother, and so men don't pass them on. And um, and the flip of that is the Y chromosome, which goes only through the male line, and it just makes it easier to study because it. Um, it becomes a single uh, single chain a literal thread mm-hmm. that goes through back through all, all of human history and so you can trace that and you can figure out you know where people came from because you carry your DNA with you mm-hmm. and you can trace back the relationships and until all of these lines converge on a single mitochondria. but uh, yeah this is just the an, a very very ancient human woman who is... Like the ancestor of everybody,
0: and mm-hmm. how old? Like,
1: how old is that? kind Um. Okay. So, I'm actually not a hundred percent sure. It's not as old as you think. It's much younger than humans.
0: More than one million?
1: No, less. Less. Wow. Yeah. So. Oh, is, she,
0: is she like a, an actual human being, not a hominid, like a, a human yeah, being? Yes.
1: So it's basically the. So they. The, the, there's a kind of a time. Um. In back in history where everybody shares ancestors with everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's not as far back as you would think. And I can't remember, that story would be much better if I could remember the date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, it's more like, so humans are about eight, 80,000 years old. Mm-hmm. And this um, this kind of point in time where everybody shares all of their ancestors is about, um, it's more like uh, 5,000 years or something like that. It's much more recent Five or ten thousand years, you know. So it's, wow. Yeah, it's and it's basically, and so you get to a certain point in time, and you know, you get these stories of somebody does one of these TV shows, and they trace their ancestors, Mm -hmm. and they discover their descendants of Charlemagne or something like Mm -hmm. that, and they get all excited, and they get that little tear in their eye because, and then you realise that actually everybody who's alive today is probably a descendant of
0: Charlemagne. Yeah, (laughs) because I saw a documentary once. the blood of the Irish, and they said that most Irish people are descended from Nile of the Nine hostages.
1: Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of Irish people descended from Nile of the Nine hostages, or at least probably Nile. That's um that's actually work done by a colleague of mine. So that was done tracing the Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. And you can trace Y chromosome and you can trace surnames. So it's really neat in Ireland because we have this really ancient surname tradition yeah. where the surnames r- pass on intact, like by contrast with somewhere like, say... um. Iceland, where I would have been called Brian's daughter. Yeah, you know? and, and the
0: Anglo-Saxons were like that too. Yeah. In, in England, uh, it was only until the Normans came in that they had surnames.
1: Yeah, yeah. So then, so our surnames carry a lot of history mm-hmm. and um, the, through the male line, and the Y chromosome essentially carries that same history. So they could see there were lots, there was this really common Y chromosome in Ireland, which uh, was associated with that Enil mm-hmm. clan of surnames, so it's not only people called O'Neill, but there's a whole group of surnames that would be the O'Neill names, and it's probably that the story that fits in history is neither of the nine hostages was a really dominant character, probably had lots of children oh, who had okay. children. Yeah,
0: right. That's what I was wondering. Did it mean that he was just? Having loads of kids.
1: Yeah, probably, I, who also had kids. And there's the, the bigger, the kind of the similar story that's more international is Genghis Khan. Yeah. Yeah. So Genghis, there's like 1% of Y chromosomes in the world, which is a huge number, um, are traced back to, uh, like, are, are very, very similar and they're traced back to probably Genghis Khan, And so, yeah.
0: Because historians then look at history and go, there was what a paladin there. What matters, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, the,
1: But the Night of the Nine Hostages one, so my colleague who worked on it, his name is Dan Bradley, mm-hmm. and he has that chromosome, so we called him Genghis Dan for a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, something I'm real fascinated about, right, is I love mythology, and I love how mythological stories through oral culture could be thousands of years old. And there's an Irish... There's a book called The Lauer Gavala Aaron, mm-hmm. The Book Book of Invasions, and it was written... About fifteen hundred years ago, but the stories could be a lot older. And it kind of—it's a mythological attempt to trace who the Irish are. And in this book, it kind of suggests whoever came here came from Spain. Mm-hmm. Has genetic work ever confirmed anything in mythology to go? oh, they were right.
1: There is actually a bit of a link with Spain, and especially the Basque uh, yeah. area. Yeah, um, and there is some similarity there, and. Um I think some of it is related to like um, refugia in the, in the glaciation and the ice age. So yeah. some bits that managed to have pockets of in of habitation when so much of Europe was inhabita- uh, uninhabitable, yeah. and um, yeah. So there's some, and there's also this um, pattern of you know being kind of slightly uh, per, like extreme west parts of yeah. of Europe. Because um, you can actually see in... Um, when you look at DNA, you can retrace migratory paths. And wow. you can see how people moved across uh, Europe from the east moving west. And you even see it within Ireland. You can actually see a gradient uh, east to west in Ireland.
0: And I'd love to know about interdisciplinary stuff here. Because so someone like Mankan Megan, who I've had on this podcast loads. So Khan's obsession is finding the roots of the Irish language. Mm -hmm. But Mancon, he finds words in, like, India, Mm. you know? And Mancon reckons there's a ton of words in India, real, and in Sanskrit, which is three, four, five thousand years old, and he finds very similar words in Irish. Would someone like a a linguist or an etymologist ever kind of work with someone in your field to go, we're looking at words here, and we reckon there's something going on in India. Is there work that you have that might help us with this? Do you ever work together?
1: Um, I didn't personally, but actually there's a really famous study that linked genetics and languages. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, uh, by this guy, Luca Cavalli-Sforza. And basically they showed this really strong connection between um, language uh, proximity and the genetic proximity. So you can kind of see the people, you know, people moving... And, you know, essentially groups of people branching off, taking their languages with them, of course, and then the the languages branching off then as well. It's actually really cool.
0: I don't know if this is related, but it got me thinking, like, just the relationship between how things spread, language and culture, right? Do you remember just after COVID, when we first started doing gigs again, Mm -hmm. and people weren't allowed to sit down like this, you'd have these pods. And something I found fucking amazing was... I did a gig in Kilmainham. So it was this huge fucking field. And it's up me up on stage. I think it was with Jim Sheridan. And everyone was sitting in a table that was like 12 feet apart. And this was so that a fucking the COVID <laughs> didn't spread. Literally so COVID <laughs> didn't spread. But what I found was, like I'm doing this a long time. So I know if I tell a joke, I know if a joke will make an entire room laugh. So I was landing these jokes that usually work, but only one, pers- one pod laughs there and one pod laughs there. Mm. But here, everybody laughs. So the cultural mechanism that, through empathy, that humour was using in a room to spread laughter, when you were... Rest- the fucking... Uh, COVID was the same.
1: Yeah. When
0: you put a restriction in to stop a disease spreading amongst the crowd, also empathy didn't spread too. Yeah. That was a bit of a tangent there. Kind of sad as well. But uh, (laughs) We're all for tangents. (laughs) Um, I'm talking a lot about the past, right? But where does your work tie in with the future? Like, I mean, okay, put it this way. How much of your work is impacted by climate change?
1: Um, Well, some bits. I mean, in terms of one of the things we're doing is trying to understand... Because my work is evolutionary genetics, so Mm -hmm. it is looking at the past, but... You try and learn from the past. And um, one of the things that we are trying to do is figure out how, um, you know, in, when there have been massive um, environmental upheavals in the mm-hmm. past, how some things wow. uh, survived that.
0: So, do, do you know, the, there was a genetic bottleneck, I think maybe 60,000 years ago. There was a volcano or something. It was a volcano. And didn't it reduce the human population to a very small amount of people? Did that happen?
1: Uh, Sixty thousand years ago, it would have been pretty small anyway. B- does that? Yeah. S-
0: I-, I read it on Wikipedia.
1: Okay, yeah. but it, it
0: <laughs> but which is re- re- reliable enough. But it is. Actually. Are you are you familiar pretty- with a, a large genetic bottleneck that happened as a result of a giant Indonesian uh, volcano?
1: Um. I mean, you're not talking about Krakatoa because that's only a couple hundred. No, years it was ago. longer than that. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't know, I don't know about that story, but there were lots of bottlenecks in human history. And
0: what's a bottleneck?
1: So a bottleneck is essentially a really drastic crash in the population size, and they call it a bottleneck because uh, it's like you have this big uh, population and it suddenly becomes yeah. small, like the neck of a bottle, and then it can go out wide again. But um, every time when so humans originated in Africa mm-hmm. and essentially went by foot um, mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. And every time, uh, you know, a new um, group was established and a few people decide, like that becomes big and a few people decide to break off and walk off somewhere else and form a new group, that is a bottleneck forming the new group because you can imagine this bigger group had a lot of genetic diversity because mm-hmm. just because of a lot of people there. And um, if... Is some small number, like ten, uh, walk off to explore somewhere else and and found a new um, colony of whatever kind. Um, they, by definition, can only carry a small amount of genetic diversity okay. with them. So it's a small number of people, and it's a kind of crash in the the diversity. But those are kind of the bottlenecks. Those things um, they call it a serial founder effect. So you have founders of a of a new pop of a new. Uh, uh, population and then a small number grow and fa- go and found a population again those are the things we trace when we are tracing how humans have moved around the world those are the kind of things you see
0: and do you see like unique diseases <coughs> or things like, like that that you can trace to these bottlenecks
1: um a yes and no i mean in the sense that um if by chance one of those 10 people was carrying something um it wouldn't be unique because uh, it existed in the in the original population but whereas it might have had a like a 1 in 10,000 frequency now it's got a 1 in 10 because mm-hmm. you know just because one of the 10 people who walked off uh, happened to carry it and you do see that like you know there's things that are common in Ireland like cystic fibrosis is really common in Ireland I heard that cystic
0: fibrosis exists because at one point in our history the same gene for cystic fibrosis is the one that makes you immune to cholera
1: there are those stories, I don't think they've been proven though. But okay, it is, is that just like no, internet well, bullshit? No, it's not internet bullshit. It's just a, it's a hypothesis. But I mean, there's another story which kind of t- links it to TB, because that's also mm-hmm. a lung disease and that the, um, that being a carrier for cystic fibrosis, so rather than having the full on uh, symptoms, but just being a carrier could have made you resistant to TB, which is... Mm-hmm. A plausible enough hypothesis, actually, and there are other examples where being a, being a carrier for something um, make you resi- makes you resistant. So it happens with malaria a lot. Mm-hmm. So there's multiple examples of where being a carrier for some uh, blood disorders actually, like um, there's one called uh, sickle cell anemia.
0: Doesn't that affect people who are African American?
1: Um, well, African, yes. Okay. So and, and African Americans, then, yeah, by extension. But essentially, um, it is. Uh, very common in parts of the world where malaria is common so you see it in sub-saharan africa there's a lot of uh, people who are carriers of this sickle cell anemia gene they are pretty okay they might be mildly anemic but -hmm. they are resistant to malaria and so in a situation where there's no malaria that mild anemia is going to be kind of a disadvantage and you could imagine because malaria
0: is a much bigger threat.
1: Basically, it's like yeah. this cost balance, cost... Uh, is it a
0: genetic trade-off? Benefit. Is that what they call it, a genetic trade-off?
1: That would be a kind of a trade-off, yeah. And then, but the problem is then, um, if you carry two copies of the gene, instead of just being a carrier, if you inherit it from both of your parents, you get sickle cell disease, which is quite bad and painful. Um, people, ha- It's a, like a, a clotting mm-hmm. problem and people get pains in their joints and it has to be managed. Um...
0: um do you ever look at like like royalty, right? <laughs> like But like all throughout your because like, the thing is what I'm always thinking about, right, is is one of the issues with the area that you're in is like like racists oh, yeah. latch onto it and racists it. are all like we racists can we can breed genetics. perfect humans. Yeah. And, like, that's what royalty tried to yeah, do. Yeah. R- royalty were like, we're class, so yeah. I'm going to fuck my cousin.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it's true. <laughs> but pretty much, <laughs> that's It's so it. true. It's yeah. so true.
0: And, and they've been doing it for a long, long yep. time. Yep. Um, because royalty did a lot of damage. Yep. But is there the benefit in going while well, you were being pricks to everybody? At least we can study what happened when you fucked all your cousins.
1: Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, they are—they do show like the, the, the really bad side effects of um, having, you know, too close. Your parents being too closely related genetically, because mm-hmm. you know, there's the famous one. I think it was uh, King Charles II of Spain, who was the is last, like the last hap, of the, the Habsburgs. Habsburgs. Job. Yeah,
0: yeah. I fucking went into a gallery in Madrid because cannabis is ca- kind of legal there <laughs>
1: and, uh, I love the way this story goes <laughs> I was just I, I,
0: I had the, you know, I went there and it's like oh it's legal smoked a joint way too strong because I'm in Spain <laughs> and then went in and looked at a lot of Habsburg jaws and got a bit of a whitener because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that I, no. I, was, I went oh look, look, some bit of weed some paintings listened to a bit of music Mariah Carey and uh, and let's look at some wonderful portraits and i went over to the it was a velazquez i think okay but because the weed was kind of a bit strong did you
1: trust your own eyes even no
0: <laughs> so so i'm i'm looking at this i think it was a velazquez going he's a great artist why is that chin so big <laughs> yeah. and then i start thinking about thinking about the chain and then before you know it yeah, whitener yeah, yeah Whitener, yeah. <laughs> where's the exit please <laughs> Where's the exit? Into into the disabled toilet, splashing water on <laughs> my face. Because of some fucking prick from the 15th century in his large jaw. Yeah, yeah. But it, I, I, after I calmed down, I went back and looked at it again, and it's like, so wow, actually, okay, all right, they all have real. these jaws. What's going on here? And then I Googled it, and everything yeah, was okay. the
1: Habsburg jaw. So that was, like, the the jaw was really prominent. Yeah. And if that was all that was going on, it wouldn't have mattered too much. Although, yeah. for Charles II of Spain, it went too far, because his teeth, his jaws didn't meet at all and he couldn't chew mm-hmm. food because yes. it was just like, it was too out of line. He had loads of other symptoms as well yeah. and he was the end of the line because he wasn't, he was too frail and unwell. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even able to have children, much as they tried actually.
0: Um, <laughs> a thought I had, a thought that I had while looking at him and staring at him for about 25 minutes straight <laughs> was, uh, I'm like, you're, you're a fucking human pug." <laughs> but that's really what it yeah. is because like, poor old pugs. Inbred. Like p- p- their poor faces old pugs. are a bit
1: squashed. Actually, it's the opposite.
0: Pugs can die just by falling down. <laughs> they can. Poor little pugs. Like they have problems with their hips. Yeah, yeah. They get problems with their lungs. And and ironically, it was the courts of Europe. Again, it was the royal courts yeah. of Europe who created a lot of these dogs. That a lot of
1: the kind of display dogs or whatever the, the, you want to call them. Like
0: the display dogs. Who anyone who owns one of these dogs knows that it's tough because. You love them, and it's an animal, but they have so many medical issues because of the extreme yeah. amount of inbreeding. It's got
1: worse, though, in the last fifty years or so, or hundred. If you look at, um, like, you know, you have um, drawings of, say, a French Bulldog yeah. from a hundred years ago, and they aren't as squashed up in the mm-hmm. face and all of that. They've really, because I mean, it demonstrates at the same time like what selective breeding does. You know, that's genetics. You can you choose the parents, and you can create these. Unusual outcomes, you know. So mm-hmm. they kept selecting parents with even more, like for purely faces, aesthetic reasons. Purely aesthetic, and um, so the breeds of dogs that were bred for other reasons, kind of working type reasons, bit healthier. Tend to be healthier, yeah. Did but you ever lot- hear
0: about the spit dog? No. This is uh, it's where terriers get loyalty and tenacity, and the turnspit dog was a working dog from about the sixteen hundreds. And it looked, like, it looked a bit like a terrier. They don't exist anymore. But the purpose of this dog's job was they used to work in a tavern in mm-hmm. pairs, right? And you'd have a big leg of lamb on the fire mm-hmm. and then like a hamster wheel up there on the wall. And the teams of dogs, the turn spit dog, little terrier, terrier would go up there and then he would run in the wheel and that would turn the meat. But then the other dog is sitting back waiting, waiting for turns, right? So they're barking at each other. It's my turn. It's your turn. <laughs> but the, what they were really bred for wasn't just the dedication to the work. The loyalty to sit beside a turning leg of lamb and mm. never bite it. Mm. And this turn spit dog, a lot of terriers trace their roots to that. And that's why it's why you'd get like, um, there's a wonderful little dog in Scotland in Edinburgh, I visited his statue at the weekend. His name is Greyfriars Bobby, and he was a little Scottish Terrier, and he stayed on his owner's grave oh, wow. for the rest of his life. But he can trace himself back to that turnspit dog. It's that dedication of, I'm this is my job. I'm not moving. The phrase, every dog has its day, mm-hmm. comes from the turnspit dog ah. because of how they would dil- diligently roar at each other. Your jo- do your work, do your job. And then it's a bit unfair. They should have been out in the field having crack, like, you know, but, but it's
1: <laughs> poor <laughs> but it
0: capitalist dog.
1: It's kind of mad, though, as well, because it tells you that these things that are, not, that are really subtle are actually genetic as well, because you do, like, so dogs are kind of an amazing genetics mm-hmm. experiment. Well, I
0: said to you backstage, my theory, dogs aren't real.
1: Oh Yeah, well, that's kind of true. They're right? not.
0: Dogs aren't real. <laughs> dogs don't exist in nature. We they made don't. dogs. Yeah, we made There's ma- wolves, and then there's dogs. Yeah. What the fuck are they?
1: They're tame wolves. Yeah, they. It's true. They're tame wolves. And they, but they kind of picked us. So you're right. Like dogs aren't real because so many dogs are. I mean,
0: <laughs> I've been saying it for ages, and people are going, "What? what what's wrong with this cunt? <laughs> dogs aren't real, and cows aren't real. Yeah, I don't think cow. Are cows real?
1: No, they don't look like the wild one at all. No, no the wild one is really different.
0: Carrots aren't real. Did you ever see a fucking real, a real, <laughs> real carrots? Wait, here it is, lads. I think I did the carrot podcast before, but. <laughs> Original carrots, right, are much more... They're, they're, um, they're related to parsley, I believe.
1: And okay, or, yeah. original
0: carrots were eff- effectively a type of parsley with a, a little a root yeah. that was kind of purple, right? And then they got this parsley and just started breeding it and breeding it until it was larger and it was purple. Yeah. But then... And this is how you can connect it to orange men. <laughs> carrots were purple, right, up until about the 1700s. And then... The, the House of Orange in the Netherlands, William of Orange, right? They started breeding carrots that were orange for the Dutch national identity. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. And then, what else fucking happened? So, that's where we get orange carrots, so it's directly related to the orange men up north. And then...
1: Oh, you know corn as well.
0: Oh, the original maize. Yeah, that was teosinte. tiny and ridiculous, wasn't it? Have you yeah. seen it? The original corn. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it grows in Mexico. It's just like a little. It just looks like a kind of a bushy grass and mm-hmm. has these tiny little things. So you know, a cob of corn is big like that. Yeah. And these are small like that, and they just have a few seeds on them. And it was, but it was that was um, domesticated like ten thousand years ago or mm-hmm. something by people living in that part of the world, and they started. Just you know, selecting. better and better yeah. and better. And it's actually become like totally dependent on humans. So a normal plant... Oh,
0: wow. Well, a so it's not plant, real.
1: It's not real, yeah. No, but a normal plant, you know, it, it sheds its seeds some way or other. Yeah. Like it either uh, produces a fruit that gets eaten and so it gets carried off or it uses the wind or uses insects mm-hmm. or something. But um, one of the things humans selected for when they were like breeding corn for farming was that all the seeds stay on the cob so that you can just cut the stem and carry it off so uh, they can't actually spread unintended corn
0: will die as a species
1: yeah wow mad
0: Um, i'm trying to think of my next question um (laughs) tell me about how racists try and co-opt oh
1: all the time yeah, no, so racists love genetics because um, it's like, you know, a little knowledge is a bad thing kind of mm-hmm. thing. And as soon as you start saying that there is any genetic factor for something they decide is good, like any of the things that decide are good, the racists think, well, all of those good things are in me, first mm-hmm. of all. That's their first assumption, that they think all of the good things are collected into them and the people who they decide they like or look like them. And then um, then they try to basically say that genetics proves that they're better, they're mm-hmm. superior, and that they should... Uh, people who take it further will like have eugenic ideas and yeah. stuff like that. And the one that's the most stupid one I ever saw is um, you sometimes see these racists out defiantly drinking milk, like getting a big mm-hmm. thing of milk, glugging it, your know, shirt off, the milk spilling everywhere. They get somebody to video them. And this is because of this idea that um the ability to drink milk, so being lactose tolerant, um, is more common in Europe. So, you know, white supremacists will like drink milk in public just to <laughs> Show off their lactose tolerance.
0: Silly, silly bastards. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> totally silly. And it's not even true that it's only European. And that's the mm-hmm. second thing. It's like, you know, because it also, this development of lactose tolerance, which comes from lactase persistence. So lactase mm-hmm. is the enzyme that uh, digests it. Um, we have it all through our adult. Well, if you can drink milk you, without having to take a little lactose, mm-hmm. lactase capsule, it means you have it. But it happened in Africa as well in certain areas where they have a dairy culture. It's just a a product of having a survival. strong history. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's
0: survival. It's like milk is. Well, I don't know is milk or good, good or bad. I saw you eating oat milk backstage.
1: I just like the taste of it. But yeah, I like. But I also like the. Um, I also uh, like try to avoid animal products but I don't I'm not vegetarian but I I minimize
0: um something I'm I'm mad fascinated about right is and it it veers a little bit into conspiracy theory well not really um (laughs) so do you know the way like companies like 23andMe yeah all these DNA companies right and these these have become very very popular in the past 10 years and what I understand too is like, it costs about, uh, like, 120 quid or something like that. Something, to, like, something that, like that, yeah. And I heard that what, it, what the actual cost is closer to about 800 quid. But the money, the reason it's cheap is because you're, you, when you get your test, you now give that company the data <laughs> of your DNA. Yeah, yeah. And 23, it, it was either 23andMe or one of the other ones, they sold all that data to Klein, yeah. who we'll make LimSIP. And, and other stuff <laughs> but like they sold it to them for 300 million yeah so w- what's going on there
1: yeah they are basically I mean now yeah, it is I mean it's kind of like what you say that they um they collect your DNA they also ask you lots of questions so they'll mm-hmm. ask you and it's and it seems like fun they'll ask you oh have you ever they'll they'll ask you lots of um, obvious straightforward questions like the color of your hair and they might ask you your weight and your sp- how sporty you are and do you have these things in your family and then mm-hmm. they, then you can go through and it's like um, it's like collecting you know air miles points or loyalty points or something mm-hmm. like you're, you're getting a score for all the and
0: they'll say like you, uh, you'll you get your results and it's like I bet you like spicy food yeah. I bet you don't like <laughs> things like that
1: well yeah some of it will be like that and so some of the results so there's that part you know the, but they are basically then collect they're doing a huge study on they got loads of DNA samples and then loads of detailed information about all the people who gave the samples so then mm-hmm. they can look for these correlations between the genetic variation and the traits, because you've given them loads of mm-hmm. information about you, even if it feels very impersonal. And so then, yeah, they um, they can then try and mine that for information that might be valuable to a pharmaceutical company. So,
0: yeah, why the... What, like, then, from the point of view of the pharmaceutical company, what do they want from all that? Like, what They wh- want what?
1: to understand some of these traits that might have a medical... Uh, like a medical angle on them, so like, so they'll ask you one of the questions they ask you is, Um, have you ever like lost 10 kilos and managed to keep it off or something mm-hmm. like that? And and so then, th- so, so one very valuable thing in pharmaceuticals would be you know dealing with weight problems because mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a rich person's oh. problem, right? So people have money to spend, and um, so like, that would be one that so
0: it is profits.
1: Of course, yeah. No, that's yeah. what I mean. The main motivation of um, pharmaceutical companies is profit. Yeah. Um, does it do. like
0: does it freak you out? Like it freaks me out, but I know fuck all. It does, does it Does it freak you out as someone who knows loads?
1: Um, I <laughs> yeah, I'm not too comfortable with it actually. Yeah, um, just the idea that I mean, I think it be ownership. Yeah, I think I mean. So we have a bad history. This in certain regards. So the one that I know re- reasonably well is um, the first ever gene that was discovered uh, that's a risk factor for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So it was called BRCA1 because it's bruh from breast and Mm -hmm. ca from cancer, so BRCA1. And actually, the work that was done to find that gene was done by this woman, Mary-Claire King, who I think is amazing. I met her. She's fantastic. And I think she probably deserves a Nobel Prize. She might get one. She's won lots of prizes. But um, she started studying breast cancer as a genetic disease when it was not fully even accepted that it was genetic. And there are other causes of cancers, right? You Mm -hmm. can get... There are uh, cancers that can be virally Mm -hmm. induced. So we know about the HPV vaccine and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and um, so it was not even totally uh, acknowledged that it was genetic. And she started studying it really on her own. And people thought she was mad to even think about it. She studied it for probably like years and years. And this was a time when we had hardly any information um no genetic disease was known linked to a gene or anything like this and she probably did about 20 years work or something and it'd gone from like you know this enormous search she'd na- it was narrowing it down narrowing it down narrowing it down and it's like if somebody had said oh you know there's a treasure chest somewhere in the world and she said oh it's in Vicker street theater you know yeah so once she fa- had narrowed it down 20 percent Uh, commercial pharmaceutical companies hopped on the project with like round the clock teams working on it. And she was beaten to it by about a month by this company called Marriott Genomics, who right away patented the gene. So, and that patenting that gene. What does that
0: mean? Patenting a fucking gene?
1: Well, yeah, exactly. What does it mean? But they were allowed to do it. And what the consequences of that were that for decades, Um, if you as a a woman needed to get a test to see were you a carrier of this gene, which is a really strong risk factor, it's a really important piece of information, um, the cost of that test was the cost of the materials and the the labor to do the test plus a fee that was owed to Myriad Genomics, which was bigger than any of the other costs. So Mm -hmm. what happened in reality was... Health services in any country were very reluctant to do these tests because it was so expensive and they'd only give you the test if you had reasons like, you know, you have to have two relatives who were affected before they'd let you do the test and stuff like this. This was fought through the courts then for Mm -hmm. ages and it was eventually struck down, but they had the patent for about 20 years. And um, in that time, research was suppressed because basically every time you did anything using the sequence of this gene, you were considered to owe money to this company. Like
0: copyright, like a copyrighted tune. It's just totally,
1: bon- like, totally bonkers. And of course, like, you know, women would uh, make the comment, you know, you don't charge me for having the gene, you know, mm-hmm. for, well, if you have the disease. I mean, it's the one, it's the same. Like, so um, Angelina Jolie, when people, a lot of people know that she had a, a mastectomy and these things, Mm -hmm. because she discovered she was a carrier. That was from, you know...
0: Because she had money.
1: She had money, yeah, but at that point as well, it was just around the time it got struck down. But yeah, she did have money as well. Obviously, she could have had private health care. But it's a really useful piece of information. It's an actionable piece of information. You know, Mm -hmm. if you know you're a carrier, you could have checks more often than somebody else, You know, and all this kind of thing. And so it was just really, really annoying. And so the idea that some of this genetic knowledge becomes proprietary knowledge that a company owns it and they get to decide who gets to use the yeah. knowledge, that con- that's doesn't sit so easily with me. And
0: it's, it's classism at a level of health and genes, mm-hmm. you know, and it's dangerous. And what, 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 so here's the thing, right? Conspiracy theorists are very much, we've seen this since COVID, right? Big farmer this, big farmer that, right? Which means that it's a minefield. Yep. Like, to the point that I'm queasy saying the word big pharma. Yeah. Because if I start talking about big pharma to ye, you're all going to go, What? Really, blind boy? Do you know what I mean? Because it, it's, it's kind of a dog whistle. When yeah, I hear yeah. someone say big pharma now, I'm like, they How, how long until they start saying that it was all the Jewish people's fault? How long? Yeah. It's yeah. that, like. yeah, it yeah. really is that. But what you've described there is a responsible, evidence-based approach to something which is fucking legitimately unethical, yeah. which we can go, oh, that's that's wrong. How do you navigate that? How do we navigate that yeah. information? Because all of you are listening to that and going, what? For f- are you fucking serious? Do you but know I what mean, I, mean? I mean? How I do th- we navigate that so that we can get interested in this stuff, keep informed, and then not be... Well, I mean, Lunatics. pharmaceutical
1: companies are companies in the business of making money. And, yeah. I, and like any company that's in the business of making money, they, they want to make money, they want to mm-hmm. make profit. But they're not in the business of making people sick. There's enough sicknesses going around that they don't need to invent any, Is that right? the
0: difference? It's yeah. they are inventing illnesses so that they can provide the cure. And that's when you step into...
1: That's the conspiracy theory is yeah. that, you know, or that um, that... There's another one I've heard, which is that there is a cure to all cancers and that the pharmaceutical companies are keeping it private because they make so much money on treating treating cancer. And it's like, can you imagine how much money they would make if they could cure cancer? Like, they'd be Mm -hmm. actually making tons more. It's like a total nonsense. And, of course, all the people who would have to be apparently keeping that secret. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... I think you know it's normal It's normal that a commercial company wants to make money. Every commercial company wants to make money. That's what they're there for. They're mm-hmm. not charities. So if you accept them as part of the health system, that's fine. You do, but you just know as well that you have to monitor them and have limits on what they're allowed to do and limits on what they're allowed patents.
0: Well, and what is the fight? Like, what do we do then? Like, where are the organisations that are fighting that fight? What do we do as civilians to, kind of, to make... St- Like, this is our bodies. Okay, yeah. Like, how do we... I don't think it's fair that a pharmaceutical company can control treatment for something that everybody gets and you you get access to that depending on how wealthy you are. I don't want to live in that world. So, like, how do we fight that? What organisations are fighting that fight that we can support them?
1: I mean... I think it's it's probably diffuse. I mean, the way I see it, obviously I work in university and I kind of see things from my point of view, but, you know, we do research Do you ever clash
0: when the university wants to be like, we're bringing in this company and that company, and you're like, well, what about our research here? Uh,
1: no, univers- they, they, um, the universities are thankfully more democratic than that, and mm-hmm. um, so that doesn't happen, but, um, you know, but we do... So I think one of the things is... You know, so we do research that's funded by the government and therefore Mm -hmm. everybody owns it. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and like conditions of our research would be that to publish it and, you know, and to share the knowledge essentially. And
0: who oversees that ethics?
1: Um, So it's it's kind of a mix of things like, so we have internally, but also just, I think it's the philosophy of Mm -hmm. university research generally um and like you know there was the human genome project was an example of Mm -hmm. that so the human genome project was so it's 20 years ago now but it was um publicly funded by lots and lots of governments Mm -hmm. and it was essentially and then um it's really it was a really big technical challenge to sequence the human genome um just in terms of the actual chemistry to do it Mm -hmm. and it was really difficult and a much easier thing to do it was to sequence little bits of DNA. But to try and sequence long bits of DNA was technically difficult. And you needed to sequence long bits because um, if you imagine it was like one of those jigsaws when um, it's all beans, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's too many bits that look the same that if you had only small jigsaw pieces, you could never solve the puzzle because it's just all orange beans. But if you have big ones, you can put it together. So that, like the human genome has loads of these repeated bits inside it, like, like one of those jigsaws. And so it, the, the publicly funded project had these conditions that all the data had to be released every night at midnight. So everything was released to the public on websites that anybody could access if you, you know, it didn't wouldn't make sense to everybody, but it was there if anybody wanted it. And then this private company got founded just, you know, shortly before the end and um, were doing, what they did was this really short sequencing that was easy, but they could make it work because they were matching it against the big pieces. Oh, okay. So it was totally piggybacking and their stated aim was to make money out of the genome. And the only way they could make money out of the genome was... Like, we felt it was probably because they were going to try and patent some things or keep proprietary access to the genome. So then it became a proper race because there was this huge push that the publicly funded one needed to win, like it needed mm-hmm. to win. And, um, so, and it, so there was this huge amount of work, and we started doing everything faster and uh, essentially, it was declared an official draw. In fact, the other one was, a, as far as I'm concerned, a scam because mm-hmm. it, they weren't able to do the sequencing for the first time. They were only able to resequence. They were only able to repeat because they could match it against something, which is easier. It's easier to do something the second time. But they officially got credit, but the company eventually like, fizzled out because they didn't have a product anymore. So that was a bit of a victory. That's nice. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, is there anything that makes you uneasy, such as... Like, I don't know, universities around the world and private interests are funding studies, you know? Or is this... an Like, what pops up there that within the community you're all like, oh, don't do that. We need ethics. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things that is very... Uh, like, say, in science, um, it is totally, totally normal and standard that everybody has to declare at every time any... Even potential conflict of interest or mm-hmm. an even perception so there are scientists who will found companies and be involved in companies and every time they write a paper they need to state that even if this paper they're writing today is about songbirds somewhere mm-hmm. but they'll have to stay, say i'm on the board or i'm an advisor yeah. for some other company and um, and it's very normal in science that we do this and it's to be like to so that everything can be seen uh, openly and i think that um that works pretty well i think so at least when you're reading it you can go okay this guy obviously has an interest they mm-hmm. p- this person is, seems to have an interest or you know they they, ha- they have this interest but you know you can decide if it's been done well or not and um unfortunately you know governments aren't interested in funding universities that well anymore and so yeah. this is the bit of the
0: and then someone else pops up and goes i'll fund it yeah that can happen black heart like, so
1: my my like <laughs> well like my kind of purest way of doing things would be that the research is like funded publicly and owned publicly and like when uh, jonas salk made the polio vaccine mm-hmm. somebody asked him would he um would like was he going to patent it and like his answer was something like could you patent the sun or something along those yeah. lines you know it's like it's not even mine to patent yeah his his perception of what he had done was that he had walked around a corner and found something not that he had created something that was there to make him money, and of course, then it was hugely valuable. I mean, it—you um, know—that was able to be uh, distributed and essentially like eliminate polio almost worldwide. It was—it was, it was uh, totally eliminated from so many countries.
0: But now, today, you see, like—and um, again, correct me if I'm wrong—I've spoken to people who are like HIV positive. Yeah. And they described it to me as like. It, it's almost like having diabetes now, yeah because yeah. they have access to prep and all these other medications that they're allowed to be that they're healthy people living a normal life, and they are they can even not pass it on to yeah. someone else yeah
1: it's actually amazing, but it's the so amazing. drugs
0: are so fucking yeah. expensive, so these are people living in a wealthy western country where the drugs are subsidized, but then people are still dying of AIDS in Africa,
1: yeah, you so know? I mean. I mean, the argument goes that uh, you need to have some kind of profit incentive for the companies to develop them, otherwise they wouldn't even bother in mm-hmm. the first place. And that's the ar- that's the way the argument goes. And um, I think if you accept that argument, you could also say, but there's a certain point in time when it like reverts to public or something mm-hmm. because that they, that, you know, that they have... Or
0: they run out of a patent or some shit like that.
1: Yeah, but then what happens is like the, the patents do expire, but then they just start... We, you know they they um they just need to come up with some new usage before the end yeah. of the patent to renew the patent and things like that, but I think they could have um I, you know, there's a lot of arguments that say there's a lot of economists who say that um you don't need to have exclusive patenting rights in order to still have pharmaceutical companies being profitable, and so you could have a different model of um of of uh, organising pharmaceutical companies. So is this guy, Dean Baker in the US. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. He's very interesting. I bet you'd like him. Um, like, he talks about this, and he talks about the idea that, um, you know, you don't... He talks about all kinds of different aspects of economics, but he talks about specifically patents and copyrights and how he thinks those are no longer fit for purpose and how um, they just... You know where a lot of people like the free market idea, mm-hmm. and they think this is the ideal, and then this is the exact opposite of a free market. Yeah. It's it's it's
0: absolutely and it's
1: and it's 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 um, and it's not. Uh, constructive. There's nothing free
0: about not being able to access healthcare yeah. because you're poor. Well,
1: also it's nothing free about saying you know I own this, you can't even make it, and yeah. and sometimes it's not even that they were they weren't always even the creators of that thing. They just sometimes bought a patent off somebody else and then increased the price. Mm -hmm. You know, a patent, uh, you know, the research has, you know, paid for itself, you know, well over, like, multiple times by now. And so I think there's things like that. And, like, when you talk about the conspiracy theory stuff, you know, sometimes it becomes easy to, to latch on to a conspiracy theory about pharmaceutical companies because not many people love pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. you know and so it's probably either they're they're easy to hate and i think in a certain way but um but you know but on the other side of it we do need companies that produce reliable effective medicines at scale you know they do so many things really well you know you can go into a chemist and you can get paracetamol you're not Mm -hmm. worried about what it contains because you know that the this has been produced to really high standards on a production line that's clean. And, you know, and all of and these medicines, it's so, it could be quite easy to take for granted that, you know, you can just buy this and swallow it, even knowing it has potent effects. Like, you know, that's why you've got it. It's this thing that has very potent effects, but you trust that the dosage is the dosage that's on yeah. the label. You know, so pharmaceutical companies are also really important. They have an expertise and they're they're doing something really important. And I think you could change the profit structure change the way it's organised, they would still be making tons of money and we could have a more kind of democratic system of medicine at the same time.
0: I'm going to take a little break there from that fascinating chat with Professor Eva McLysett and have a little ocarina pause. Before I do, I want to clarify something I said there in the chat where I was speaking about HIV and I compared it to diabetes. I want to be clear there that I wasn't minimizing or downplaying hiv i've spoken to people who work with organizations like act up which is a group that works towards ending the aids pandemic and they also inform people about hiv and aids because people who live with hiv there's huge stigma social stigma around it and ostracization and social rejection and the reason i said diabetes is because People who are HIV positive today, with access to the right medicine, can manage the virus and live a normal life the way that the person who is diabetic can do the same when they have access to medicine and insulin. So I should have clarified that when I was chatting with Aoife. So I don't have an ocarina this week, but I do have a book. The book that I have in my hand is Six Thinking Hats by Edward de Bono. It's a book of strategies about how to think more creatively. Edward de Bono was like a professional thinker. I think he might have possibly invented the phrase thinking outside the box. He definitely invented the phrase lateral thinking. But if you want to address any problem or situation in a more creative way, or want to change how you think creatively, then get yourself Six Thinking Hats by Edward de Bono, or any book by Edward de Bono. I'm going to hit myself into the head with this book now, and you're going to hear an advert. You can hear that echo, a movement. my home studio into a room with poor acoustics so you can hear the echo of this book off my head i need some acoustic foam in here i need some sound panels that that's a big reverb very painful too that was the ocarina pause support for this podcast comes from you the listener via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you mirth, merriment, entertainment, distraction, whatever has you listening to and returning to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing, because this is my full-time job, this is how I earn a living, this is how I pay my bills, it's how I rent my office. I adore making this podcast, I love it. This podcast is seven years old now. The happiest seven years of my fucking life where each week i get to be genuinely passionate and this is only possible because of patrons it's the only reason it's possible there's no commissioner that i have to please there's no one coming in saying get more ratings or you're cancelled there's no advertisers coming in saying change your content we need more listeners fuck that i have the time and space to embrace failure and be playful and that's i couldn't possibly ask for anything more So thank you to all my patrons. If you met me in real life, would you buy me a cup of coffee or a pint? Well, you can via the Patreon page. That's all I'm looking for. The price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month, that's it. If you can't afford it, don't worry about it. You can listen for free because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Patreon.com forward slash the Blind By Podcast. Upcoming gigs. Like I said, Vicar Street this month, the 22nd and the 23rd, Monday and Tuesday. If you're liking this, this live podcast there with Aoife, that's the vibe that you can expect from one of my Vicar Street gigs. That's why I adore the venue. Then, I'm off to Norway. I have a live podcast in Oslo on the 6th of February. Really looking forward to that. And then I'm in Berlin on the 8th and the 9th. The 8th is sold out. A couple of tickets left for the 9th. Can't wait to go to Berlin. 20th of February, I'm up in Derry at the Millennium Forum. 23rd of February, I'm in Killarney. And then in April, my big giant UK tour. Cambridge, Brighton, Bristol, Cardiff, Nottingham, Glasgow, Newcastle. And then on the 1st of May, I think the biggest, the biggest live podcast I've ever done without doubt, in the Hammersmith Apollo. Tickets are selling quickly for that UK tour. So, come along, you wonderful cracking tens! Without further ado, let's go back to the live podcast with the profoundly interesting and wonderful Professor Eva MacLycett. Something I'm, I'm mad to ask you about, and I've never had the opportunity to ask someone who's in the know about this, uh, epigenetic trauma. It's, it's a word that gets thrown around all the time it's a word that gets misused quite a bit. What is epigenetic trauma, and what do you know about it?
1: Um, so I think it's basically this idea.
0: Oh, so it's just an idea.
1: <laughs> most, thing, most everything starts as an idea, okay. doesn't it? But no, but it, it's it's an idea. It doesn't fully work. So yes. It is, um, so basically, uh, the idea of epigenetic trauma is that if um, you know, if I suffer something, my uh, Grandchildren and great-grandchildren will still have some, like, legacy of this. Some somehow, some memory of it.
0: Like, so the trauma, big enough, can, can impact the DNA in That's your body. That's the
1: idea, right? mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't work. Uh, I mean, it doesn't work as an, it doesn't uh, work that way. Um, the, because essentially, um, like, so if I, if I do suffer a trauma um and it then affects my behavior i'm scared of something for the rest mm-hmm. of my life or i'm you know i'm somehow affected by that uh psychologically and um, what i pass on to the next generation is a single cell the egg that has a copy of the dna that's totally um that doesn't have those brain those memories from my brain doesn't even have a brain you know so mm-hmm. the mechanism for that to be passed on is kind of tricky at at the least yeah um but so when people say epigenetics like epigenetics is a thing and so epi just means on top of and it's basically modifications to dna and it's usually to do with which genes are turned on and off and things like this Mm -hmm. and it does have um some lasting effects as in during that process of development where you have so you start with just a fertilized egg and it eventually Mm -hmm. grows into a little human during that process um you know the starting fertilized egg They say it's, uh, you know, totally potent. It can become any type of cell in the body. But at a certain point, um, the cells kind of get committed to one type. So if you cut your skin and it heals, it heals with new skin cells. But you Mm -hmm. can't grow liver cells from skin cells and things like that. And that's because some of the genes have been permanently turned off. And um, that can be reset and it has been done. So there is this, but only in an experimental setting. So there's this thing where you could take skin cells and you can kind of wipe off essentially, the epigenetic marks, and then you could use it to grow cells in the lab that would be a genetic match to me. So, um, you know, it could be used for some kind of uh, medical transplant of sorts. That's kind of the idea. But the... um, So that epigenetics is the stuff that goes onto the DNA that changes what's on and off. And the idea of the epigenetic trauma across generations is that that gets inherited
0: and there's no so you're saying in your role that we haven't seen evidence for epigenetic trauma
1: um not this transgenerational thing mm-hmm. no which is the thing that people get very interested in so the study that mo- a lot of people hear about is this um one of famine in the netherlands during mm-hmm. world war ii and you know how there was uh, apparently some effects of this um, into a couple of generations. And so it can go potentially two generations in one scenario. So let's just imagine if I was pregnant right now with a female uh, a female baby, then um, what things I suffer obviously affect the, the baby because uh, we're together at this point. And if it's a female baby, she's born with all her eggs already uh, there in her body, unlike males who produce sperm throughout their life. So um, the thing that happens to me is happening to all of us in a sense, and including happening to her eggs. So that's kind and of you the mean limit. Stress of it. on
0: your body and then the stress on the baby.
1: Yeah, so that could so that in that sense, um, you know, you could see how if I suffered a famine. For example, that that could that could affect the the baby that I currently have in a pregnancy, and could potentially have some effect.
0: But it's not fucking with their genes.
1: Uh, no, um, like not not no not permanently, and not 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 across more generations than that. The kind of the last generation it could possibly affect is the one that grows from the eggs in the in the baby.
0: Something I think about a lot. Right. So, my great grandmother was in the famine, Mm -hmm. right? Wow. Well, I come from a line of people who had children really late, so it's strange. So my great-grandmother was in the famine. Then, like... Oh, no, was that my great-great-grandmother? One of them. Then... My grandmother wasn't in the famine, right? But she was an anxious woman. Mm -hmm. And then... No, lads, I'm after getting this fucked up. Hold on, hold on. Hold on a second. My great-grandmother was in the famine. She was a baby though. <laughs> Hold on, she, she was in the famine. Then my grandfather, right, he was in West Cork and he, had to, he was in the RA, he had to fight the Black and Tans. As a result of that, having to fight the Black, like he was just a farmer and all of a sudden he's in this position. He was a very anxious man mm-hmm. on account of having yep. killed people and been shot at. A very anxious man with a lot of trauma. And then my dad, picked up this trauma and anxiety because he's being raised by a very anxious person so my dad was mad anxious and me then as a child I learned anxiety as a response when when something would happen in the house whatever it would be my dad wouldn't react to it in a calm or rational way his immediate first reaction was panic okay so me as a little kid looking at the adult I learn oh The first thing you must do is panic. Any type of stress, you must panic, and then I become an adult with severe fucking panic attacks. And I see that for me as learned behaviour because of a trauma, but nothing to do with not
1: the genetics genes. It's
0: simply behaviour. Yeah. You know, and kids look to adults for behaviour.
1: Yeah, you learn like you you can learn a lot of those things, like you say.
0: But are there? Let's so I'm autistic, right? Is there a gene for autism?
1: Uh, there isn't a gene for autism in the sense of not one thing, but there are multiple potential uh, genetic factors that can um, make autism more likely in a given individual. So this is where, like, it's the recipe, not a blueprint. Okay. But um, so that... um, it, it could. It, you can have genetic factors that make something more likely in one person than they are in another person, but it just still doesn't mean they're definitely. That's definitely going to happen. And um, what are they? Um, so in, in they would be not anything that would roll off the tongue like it would be a, okay. s- a small variation there'd be, and there'd be lots of potential different genes because the brain is very complex and autism mm-hmm. is very complex and has lots of different aspects to it and mm-hmm. lots of differences in severity as well um, you know so like,
0: like I don't Jesus Christ I could meet another person who's autistic and we fucking nothing in common like yeah. yeah. You no, know, honest yeah. to God though honest to God like they all of, they can hear lights and they get freaked out by lights. Like, I don't have any sensory issues yeah, or anything yeah. like that. Um, but it is, it's is—it's a weird thing for me as well, because I, I almost feel uncomfortable calling myself autistic, because I was there at the airport at the weekend, you know? And because I'm diagnosed autistic, I'm entitled to a wristband that means that I don't have to queue up at the airport. I can get special assistance. And I'm there... I, I don't do it, because I'm like, I don't fucking need it, so I'm not doing it. But I was there with the big, massive queue, going fuck's sake no <laughs> but, and then I saw and it was all these it was people in fucking wheelchairs yeah. and it's like oh they actually fucking need it and imagine me rocking yeah. up and going can I, can I jump ahead of the queue there yeah. oh why I, I, I think about the Norman invasion an awful lot <laughs> do you know what I mean It's weird for me, but someone else can be like straight up, there's a crowd or even the lights at the airport and that's it, they're, fuck, get me out of here, you know? So it's a strange thing, I don't understand it. I'm I'm not allowed to call it Asperger's anymore.
1: Yeah, that term has been dropped. He was a
0: bastard. Do you know know why we don't call it Asperger's anymore?
1: No.
0: You don't know? No. Hans fucking Asperger was a Nazi.
1: Ah.
0: Yeah, so he was a Nazi doctor and what Hans Asperger would do is that at the death camps, when they were deciding if people had physical disability or what they perceived to be mental disability, when these people were being exterminated, Hans Asperger would walk in and goes, "Not them ones. Those ones will be good scientists and artists." And these were the Asperger kids, and they were people who what we now call ASD level one, mm-hmm. the people who are high-functioning autistic. It's like, you're a bit eccentric. And and this, and that's what Asperger's is. So we don't say that mm. anymore. Now it's ASD level okay. one. But then for me, then it's weird because it's like, I'm calling myself autistic, but then I meet another person who's autistic and they really need a lot of support and a lot of help and they can't fucking speak. Yeah, yeah. And then for me, I feel uncomfortable in that space. So it's a weird one. Yeah. It's like I do need another word, just not one named after a Nazi.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it is. I think it's a challenge as well just because it is such a wide spectrum of mm-hmm. um symptoms that people have and then you know there's this thing people say you know um not about us without us or something like that is yeah. that the way they or uh, the way they phrase it but you know so and there's this push that um you know patient advocacy ad- advocacy groups should be uh, patients speaking for themselves but then you have this issue that within autism the ones who can speak for themselves yeah. are a group that have a different experience than the ones who are actually nonverbal, and it gets this Very is why, difficult. like,
0: e- even... Like, I said I was autistic on the late late the other night, and I felt like a bit of a prick for I that think, exact reason. Yeah. Because how do I speak for someone who's non-verbal? Like, like uh, someone was asking me, what, what, would, what would my idea... School was pretty difficult for me. But right now, as an adult, I'm pretty... I'm grand, mm-hmm. I'm flying it, and I'm in a career that I like, and I get to explore my interests. But school was difficult for me because... in order for me to learn something, I need to pace up and down really rapidly while listening to heavy metal. I'm not joking you. When I'm researching my podcast and I'm in my office and I I hide this behaviour, this is the behaviour that I hide because it looks fucking mad. (laughs) But if I'm coming up with a hot take... I'll I'll run up and down listening to fucking Sepultura, And when when I'm doing that, I'm incredibly happy and I can move my hands. Oh, and I'm I'm living in space and I'm thinking of all the ideas and I'm in the place I need to be. But I really do need that in order to learn. And when I can do that, I'm like a fucking laser beam. In school, it's like sit down. I'm intimidated by everyone else around me. I couldn't learn fucking shit. But imagine, now that's what I would have needed in school a big ask yeah it's a big ask <laughs> <laughs> but then what made me have a little bit of compassion for myself right because I, I was thinking that, that's a bit greedy you can't ask for that in junior junior cert even though if I'd have fucking done it I'd have flown past me. Yeah. I'll give you the fucking example right <laughs> so I, I, I failed my leaving cert I almost failed my junior cert very very bad results except for one area there was an agricultural science section on the, uh, on the science paper. We didn't even study this in my fucking school. Didn't even study it. I took it and got 100%. Ooh. But the reason was, I'd been listening to this band called Cypress Hill at home. And they were a rap band and I fucking loved them. And I'd listened. When I got home from school, that's when I could be myself. That's when I listened to music and, and got in, in, into the interest I was into. So my interest was when I was 14, listening to this band Cypress Hill. And Cypress Hill just kept speaking about weed. Smoking weed, growing weed. But I was so interested in the lyrics, I just wanted to know more about cannabis as a plant. So I looked into the back of one of my brother's magazines, and they were setting all that mail-order stuff about how to grow cannabis. So I bought a book on that and sent off for it, which was How to Grow Cannabis. And it came back, but it was actually a really fucking rigorous scientific document about botany. So I'd be at home... Listening to Cypress Sale all day, reading really advanced fucking botany. And then I went into the junior sort, sat this paper that they don't even sit in the school, and got 100%. I, the marks that I got were so high that I was putting notes there that didn't even belong and answering beyond the questions. It got me in trouble. I got pulled into the principal's office because they're like, you're a little shit. You don't. <laughs> but, it, but it's like, <laughs> you're a little shit... The rest of your results are terrible. What the fuck did you do here? <laughs> because it was did so... Did you tell un- them? I couldn't. I couldn't because <laughs> I, could, I couldn't tell the teachers because I've got a book at home about growing hash. <laughs> but I look back at it now and that, the, the the reason it happened is because I got to follow my thing yeah. there. Listening to music that I love, whatever it is about the music, like I perceive things differently. Like I, I can perceive music as almost like shapes. Yeah. I, I hear music as as... Because music is just symmetrical vibrations of air, so sometimes I can envision it being there like a synesthesia. And
1: do you, do you, oh, I was going to ask about oh, no, synesthesia. It is. Yeah, you when I like when it. I
0: I produce music as well. So when I make songs, I've got my two speakers there, but it, I, it's Lego.
1: And do you kind of see it? Do you feel like you see yeah. it in front of you, or what do you kind of feel like it's somehow inside mm, your head as well? Some people. It's, per- so it's, it's syn- not
0: augmented reality. What it's like yeah. is. Um, oh, it's a little daydreamy. Mm. It's, it's, I can imagine the blocks so well that they're they're not there, but they are. But, like, when yeah, I listen, yeah. it's it's 100% physical, and I can see all that space. And because I'm relating to music in a very different way, that's why, when I was, like, 22, I made a song in my bedroom, and it almost became Christmas number one and beat fucking X Factor. <laughs> but that's it. That's why. Because I could see music. But, like... Yeah, when I was a kid in school, I realise now that 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 actually, learning about agricultural science and botany, that was me as an autistic kid going, that's how you fucking learn. And if I had actually been allowed, let him do history on his own, listening to Cypress Hill, I'll get fucking 100%. I'm not joking you. But imagine then, I went to the other kids in the class, the the kids who were neurotypical, the kids who were okay, sitting down, listening to the teacher, watching the teacher's face. Imagine I said to them, No, you can't do that anymore. You have to listen to Slipknots and pace up and down and then try and learn your history. That would be fucking torture for them. So it was torture for me the other way around. You know, it's nuts. But that's just my unique autistic experience. What about someone else, and their problem is lights yeah, so it 's a real it 's a tough thing to accommodate because the spectrum is so um, unbelievably different for everybody,
1: but I think even not within autism, like people I, I mean in a kind of an ideal situation, people be allowed to learn in their own way at their own pace instead yeah. of you know, you know the way, like our school system is you 've got a class and then another class, mm-hmm. so you 're doing history, and you are just starting to get into it, and they go, sorry, no geography yeah. now, you know, or now maths, you just have to chop and change instead of. Just burrowing into something and finding it interesting and seeing where it leads you. It just doesn't work at scale, I suppose. I don't know. You'd
0: have to measure passion. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd have to measure passion and engagement rather than the actual outcomes of it. And it's just, I keep thinking it's a huge, big ask. But like, is it really? Because you're talking about people's lives. Yeah. And they say with the, the school system as we have it today... It's something that was very much developed in the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. and we all Make know. Make little
1: it, office clerks. That's what school yeah. is.
0: School is is training people to be good in the office. You know, it trains people for how the society works today. Even, I did a podcast about the history of the color grey, and I. Tra- it, but it's it's I traced. Do you know those little beehives on Skellig Michael? Yeah. Those. So do you know you know Skellig don't you? That little island. It was in Star Wars. <laughs> so it, it's an island. Um, I I think it's off the coast of Galway. I I think so. No, 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 no. It's down by Kerry. Down by Kerry. And on these islands, you have these strange little stone beehives. And monks used to work in there. And their work was clerical work. It was official office work. It was considered unnatural because it was work that was not performed in nature. Mm -hmm. And what those monks were doing was, how do I separate myself from nature? So they built these grey stone huts But you can trace that and the color gray of those rocks all the way right to the color of the fucking uniform that you wear in school. Because you go into an office, why is it gray? Why is everything gray? Why is everything serious gray? Why are politicians' suits gray? You can trace it all the way back. Gray was seen as unnatural. Mm. And what I mean by unnatural, removed from nature so that you can be not distracted by the wonder and beauty of everything and focus intently on your work. You know, mm. that was a tangent of, of a tangent and a fucking half. <laughs> um, I want to ask some of the questions that. Oh the, yeah, you've int- questions. The internet had loads of. There goes my vape. The internet had loads of. Uh, this fucking my my normal vape broke. I don't like this new one. It looks like lipstick, and the <laughs> other thing as well. And I noticed this with my guest last night too. Because of the fucking shape of it. It's like I'm intimidating you with a knife the whole time. <laughs> it doesn't happen with the other vapes. Because I noticed you... And my guest last night as well was uncomfortable. And I'm like this.
1: I, I, I don't feel intimidated, if that helps. Okay, good, good.
0: <laughs> um, Let's see. Oh, yeah. Uh, the rumours a couple of years ago that they cloned a human in China. Uh, <laughs> you did you know hear his? about that?
1: Um, I heard about it, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, it is... It is technically possible, it's just considered ethically taboo.
0: Because we had that sheep, Dolly. Dolly, yeah. Dolly was a proper cloned sheep. Yeah, yeah. So, so y-
1: and other mammals have been cloned.
0: So we could do it with a person.
1: It's technically possible.
0: But it's like...
1: Ethically. Don't be fucking doing that. Yeah. No, and it's, it's like, it's not only... I mean, it's just like a whole, like, minefield of so many different things, because...
0: If you clone a human, does that human have parents?
1: genetically yeah it has the same it has whoever the, the donors are, so you
0: right? do require sperm and an egg to clone a human well
1: actually sorry no to clone a human the, genetically the parents would be the same as the one who was cloned so like if we cloned you this
0: I know about cloning because of my book from Growing Weed when I was 14 but <laughs>
1: But like genetically, they'd be the same as you. So genetically, mm-hmm. your parents would be their parents, even if they met them ever or not, or existed but it's an at the exact same time and place. it's an exact copy.
0: It's an exact copy.
1: Genetically, yes. Apart from the mitochondrial DNA, which is what we mentioned earlier, the bit, that little bit in the mitochondria, because that's separate. and They don't um, usually transfer that.
0: Did Dolly the sheep have a brother or a sister?
1: You mean a cloned one? Well, they, like... When they uh, did that cloning experiment, so the guy who did it just died, actually um but uh, just incidentally but um they tried several hundred times and one worked basically mm-hmm. um and uh, then i don't so i don't think they cloned again from the same source mm-hmm. as far as i know but um yeah so dolly was an exact copy of another sheep but was um the surrogate mother was a different so
0: so the other sheep wh- what i want to know really is like was there a parallel sheep with dolly cuz that's the interesting thing in a perfect world where you were allowed clone humans
1: you'd make multiple of the same yeah you want a clone you, army
0: because if you have that then then you can test all the, like I'm being mad on ethical now yeah but like if you have two clones of humans i mean have that one in in dublin and that one in cork
1: you know, you well, know that's I mean? identical twins, so that actually has oh, been done. Oh, really? Well, Are did, identical
0: twins clones?
1: Basically, yeah. Fuck in the same off. sense. <laughs> no, but
0: really? Really?
1: Effectively, genetically, it's the same thing. You've wow, got two okay. People, you've got two people with exactly the same DNA.
0: Um, do you think they cloned a human in China?
1: They could have. It's quite possible. And um, the
0: rumours, were they legitimate, or was it just internet shit? or?
1: It's, it's really hard to know, right, because... It's not the kind of thing they probably can um, uh, announce to... Like, so if you really wanted to do this and have it absolutely verified, you'd be announcing the it in, in advance. the audience, taking <laughs> No, but, like, you'd be announcing it in advance. You'd be demonstrating, this is where we took the DNA sample from, mm-hmm. this is where we got the egg from, and then at the end, you'd have this uh, baby that's born and you'd be able to show, look, this baby has the same DNA as this other individual. But because it, the way it was done was not... Uh, it was secretive and so they claimed they did it Mm -hmm. um, but you know the the where the people they took the sample from and the person they took the egg from and everything wasn't made public so that's the way you could have verified it so they could have done it because the technology exists and because um, it's quite possible that somebody could subvert or bypass ethical um, constraints and manage to do it anyway find somebody who's willing and all that kind of thing But it isn't verified because nobody kind of kept track of it that way, probably because it was illegal and secretive. And
0: what is the main ethical argument about not cloning humans? Like, why is it so bad?
1: I suppose, uh, and lots of different ones, um, it potentially treats human life as kind of a commodity. Mm -hmm. Um, It also carries a potentially huge burden of expectation. Like, even if you were to imagine something less contentious, like cloning your dog,
0: mm-hmm. like you
1: know, you have this dog you love and uh, they die.
0: Do you think that's going to happen in the future? I think people
1: possibly have done that actually.
0: My beloved dog died. Can uh, I have it again? Yeah,
1: and then what happens is you get really disappointed because oh, this is fuck. well, it's not your dog; it's your dog's twin. Oh my God! You know, so this dog is going to be different. It's not, not going to the same
0: personality. No, you know, the same oh way that God. two twins
1: are not the same. Yeah. So then, then you have this. Has this th-
0: happened? Have people done dog cloning and, and just had a disappointing Jack Russell?
1: I I believe so.
0: (laughs) But that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with.
1: Yeah. Yeah, This This uh, one's a bit of a goal. Yeah. Unlike...
0: (laughs) This one likes postmen.
1: Yeah, yeah, something like that. And yeah, yeah, they don't want the same food and whatever. And and this one used to sit on your... The old one used to sit on your lap and just be Mm -hmm. really quiet. And this one just yaps at you and poos on the carpet and stuff. But... um, but then yeah, so cloning humans if you were cloning humans because you're trying to replace somebody you love. Oh fuck. Very, very problematic.
0: Oh dear God. If yeah. you're
1: cloning humans because I mean, so not even cloning humans, but even um you know, there is an ethical it's a kind of a side can shoot Can I grow of this. Us
0: a, one of me and he's in a cage and I can have his liver when mine fucks up?
1: Well, yeah, that's, and that's, um, you know, the it's Ishiguro book, Never Let Me Go. Mm-mm. That's basically that. It's, um, or and there's a film, The Island as well, which is that, but it's basically people who are grown for organs, mm-hmm. grown as organ don- donors. But, you know, so that's an issue. Would you be doing it for that reason? And there's a kind of a side shoot of this, which is um, if you have, Like, so, you know, if you have a a family, you've got a few children, one of them needs uh, an organ donation or a bone marrow transplant or something, you might then look and see is somebody else in the family, a match, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's, and that would be considered okay, normally. But then having a child deliberately so that they could be a match is kind of the next step on that. Mm -hmm. And that's where it, it gets a bit more problematic, you know, and you can have a lot of arguments one way or the other, is this ethical? Like, are you you know, is, are you having this child and you could use IVF to be confident they'd be a match and things like that. So you could select which embryos to use. And, um, you know, so that's technically possible, but ethically really problematic because it's different than saying, you know, this is our family and we have these children. And if one of them is a match, you know, you accept as a parent that mm-hmm. th- this one goes to the surgery for the bone marrow donation or something. But Choosing to have the child specifically for that purpose feels more transactional and
0: it's uh, not great, yeah.
1: And it's you know, it's it there isn't
0: wor- the, the thing is, right? I only have a feeling and I don't have words for the feeling because it's so new, so that means yeah. it's bad, yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's just it just it just feels like you're not treating that person as their own person anymore, mm-hmm. you're treating them, and it's it's not the same as having a copy of you in a cave that you can come and take the liver for later, mm-hmm. but it feels not totally different either
0: is it do you think we could get to a point where you can just grow my spleen or my liver yeah. because that, that doesn't point. sound too bad yeah because i my, my liver doesn't, doesn't have, feelings. have feelings
1: absolutely and we get, we are getting to that point point. and so and when is I that a goal
0: is that a goal yeah
1: and so when i mentioned earlier that thing when we were talking about epigenetics and i said mm-hmm. you know your skin cells are always your skin cells but experimentally you can kind of reset that mm-hmm. that's the that's what that area of research is aiming to do so essentially um you can so the 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 just fertilized egg is that cell that can make any possible other kind of cell and they're Mm -hmm. trying to take a skin cell and reset it like that Mm -hmm. and then trigger it to grow into other types of cell and so um you know some structures are more simple and so liver is actually an easier one because it's an organ that doesn't have like lots of complex structures inside mm-hmm. it. Like a heart has a proper shape, and you got to have mm-hmm. chambers and all that. But the liver is is just kind of a big sludge. <laughs> to be technical about it.
0: And one of the, do you remember earlier I was talking about Twenty Three and Me? Yeah. One of the conspiracy theories about that, just because it's interesting. So one of the conspiracy theories I read was, so you've got Twenty Three and Me, all these companies, and they're they put a lot of money. Uh, in the past 10 years, into targeting deliberately, like, young people. Mm -hmm. People 21, 22. And the conspiracy theory is, they're targeting young people, so that in, like, 50 years, they're they're basically hoping for that technology. They're hoping for sometime down the line, we'll be growing livers and lungs, and when you're on Twitter or Facebook in 30 years, and you get older, your targeted ad is going to be We've got your liver in a jar, <laughs> but do you know what I mean. Yeah. Because you did 23 and Me when you were young. We got your whole DNA, sold it to Klein. It's internet in the future, and now you're tar- in the same way that like, I'm approaching my 40s, so most of my targeted ads are hot milfs in your area. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They know what it. Or, <laughs> this is the maddest one of all, right? This is the best one. <laughs> I bought a barbecue there about three years ago, right? And I was unhappy with the barbecue. So I engaged in a series of angry emails with the people who sold me the barbecue. This barbecue isn't good enough. I want it replaced. And it went back and forth, back and forth. But I'm doing it on Gmail. So all of my words are definitely going into that data. So after a week of arguing about a barbecue, I started getting ads for divorce lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) Because... because it was such divorced behaviour divorced man behaviour you know but that's what they're thinking they're thinking you give away your DNA to 23andMe when you're young and then in the future your targeted advert is we know what age you are we kind of know what health issues you may get because we have your DNA and do you want your lung? We've got your lungs <laughs> over here we can grow them right there we'll shipping to you
1: but does that do- sound mad? yeah
0: Um <laughs> <laughs> that was the best yeah I've ever gotten in my life you didn't even elongate it it's like a fucking punctuation yeah yeah so that's fucking nuts well
1: because you still have your own DNA too so if you need a new liver you can just take a sample from yourself okay okay yeah but they I mean (laughs) so they don't have exclusive rights to your DNA but um so yeah and if they take and it'll be a fresh sample as well it'll be much better okay yeah but um yeah. Is
0: this why we stopped hearing about stem cells?
1: And um, so, st- well, what they call co- you don't
0: hear about them anymore.
1: I do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: uh, no, these say ones- like white dog shit. <laughs> <But go on.
1: laughs> so these. Um, So stem cells are the cells in an embryo that can grow Mm -hmm. into almost anything. And um, these ones, if you take a skin cell and reset it, that's called an induced pluripotent stem cell. So it's an induced... Your
0: own stem cell. You're
1: basically inducing an ordinary cell to become like a stem cell.
0: Before I open questions to the audience, I want to ask you about gene editing. Yeah. I want to ask about gene editing designer babies. Tell us about this.
1: Okay. Twilight
0: Designer Babies. <laughs> Sounds like a class band, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: Uh, so, I mean, basically, I mean, you know, DNA can be written as text. You know, mm-hmm. you write your sequ- sequence as text, so you can talk about changing it, like editing. And um, some kinds of editing are, in my opinion totally, um, ethical and, uh, really, really, uh, if, if we could do them, I'd be doing them right away. And that's this is like
0: hereditary diseases. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and you can do it in such a way that you are only treating the individual. You're not, um, doing something that would be permanent through the generations, you know? So let's just say like, if you took the example of, um, cystic fibrosis mm-hmm. where that's caused by a mutation in one gene. And there's actually one specific mutation is the most common one in Ireland. It's just mm-hmm. a little piece that's missing. And um, three letters are missing in the middle of the gene. That's all. And um, that causes the disease. And so if you could um, have a therapy that could be like because it's the lungs, it could even be in inhaler form potentially. Wow. You know, so this is the who takes
0: it. So the the idea, that no, 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 no.
1: The idea would be in this case it would be the to the person, person. who has. Yeah, so, oh my God! You it can would be, change. Oh my well, God! Well, it would be edit. It would be affecting only the the cells it comes in contact with. So it would literally be the lining of the lungs. So that's an idea. Then that. that okay. Would, so that that's. That's not working. That is amazing. No, that's, uh, that's actually been one. It's not working yet. That's been an idea for a while. It turns out, well, one of the symptoms of um, cystic fibrosis is having very thick mucus, mm-hmm. so it's hard to get through. But I, uh, there are other kinds. So there's, um, there's colleagues of mine who work. I didn't
0: know gene editing was something you. I thought it meant it has to happen at like an IVF stage. I didn't know it was like it, for it someone It can be now. both. So
1: in the way I'm talking about it, it would be as a therapy, and a yeah, a gene therapy. Yeah. Okay. And it's been done as well for blindness, Mm -hmm. so um, there's uh, genetic forms of blindness, and um, in that case, it can be, I mean, it sounds, people might find it squeamish, but it's better than the alternative, it's an injection into the eye, Mm -hmm. and um, so it affects only the eye, and if you do it before the person gets blind, it's now, like, these have been in human trials for a while, have been quite successful, and you can delay or prevent the onset of blindness. And that
0: is gene therapy being used?
1: Yeah, and that is editing uh, genes and editing the genome and introducing genes and replacing genes and things like that.
0: Um, Is there anything like mad that can happen from that
1: there are there are possible um problems with any of these things so essentially um so what they do is they use a virus to deliver the dna Mm -hmm. so um but that's because what viruses do is essentially inject their dna into the cell they're infecting Mm -hmm. so you take advantage of the fact that viruses are already doing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And to use a safe virus that does it. And then that DNA can get integrated into the normal genome that's already there. Mm -hmm. And one of the risks would be that it gets integrated into a place that causes a problem by itself. So if you imagine you have a normal gene here, and um, this integration just happens right in the middle of that, then it breaks that gene. And so that could be a potential problem. And, you know, so those are the kind of risks you have to weigh up. um.
0: I heard that um, the COVID vaccine has got gene editing in it, and when they turn on the 5G, we're all going to (laughs) die. No. (laughs) But that, as an example of how your work gets... Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: no That's what conspiracy theorists I know, say. So I, they're, they're I know.
0: People are saying that the COVID vaccine has got... Is, is it gene editing like that? And then it's tied in with 5G, so but it, like...
1: Yeah, it doesn't have I'm, any I, gene I'm editing. I'm not being mad.
0: I know. I'm just saying this is what people believe and it's wrong yeah, and now yeah. we have an expert.
1: <laughs> so it doesn't... Actually, the COVID, the mRNA vaccines don't have, do any editing. Mm-hmm. So what they have... So mRNA is... Um, so the gene is DNA and mm-hmm. the mRNA is produced by DNA, which when a gene is turned on, the first step of a gene being turned on is it makes mRNA and that is the instructions to make the protein, which is mm-hmm. whatever... So the covid oh, so
0: that's what it does to us. So the COVID vaccine yeah. was
1: just the mRNA, yeah. which are the instructions to make the protein. So what happens is when you get the vaccine, it enters into your cell and it makes the protein. And that protein that the COVID vaccine makes is the spike protein of the virus, mm-hmm. which means now that your body gets exposed to the spike protein, but a disembodied spike protein. So it's, and then your immune system learns that protein the same way it would have learned it in, if it was an infection, and now your immune system knows uh, how to recognise and destroy that things that are attached to that spike protein.
0: And how different is that process to, we we'll say, fucking Edward Jenner, the old school uh, uh, vaccines. So
1: um, the original vaccines were um, either mild or deactivated f- forms of something that was the full virus. Mm-hmm. So in this case, um, the vaccine was not the virus, the the one we're talking about. So mm-hmm. um, there were versions of covid vaccines in some countries that were an inactivated virus so you can give an inactivated virus or you can give a mild so the word vaccine comes from so the latin for cow because mm-hmm. it was the cowpox he was yeah. giving as a mild thing that was close to close enough to smallpox that um, your body could mount a better response to smallpox because it had seen something like that before but the covid vaccine was never entering your dna mm mm-hmm. So it's just the mRNA.
0: And how does it get to the point of misinformation where you have people saying what I just said?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. It's I'm I, I not quite sure because I don't quite understand how it went so far, and I don't mm. understand like when people were going on about five G and then vandalising the masts and stuff. Yeah, it was, it was so.
0: Like, ah, I mean it's a great like okay, it's a <laughs> great story. Yeah, I would watch that film. But yeah. let. let that's the thing with conspiracy theories they're one like it's folklore but, it's folklore but it's right now and it's happening But it's like
1: we were talking about earlier like you know people mistrust the pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. so there were there was certain people who were just ready to jump on the idea that they'd be you know taking this opportunity to poison us all or whatever you know instead of you know actually the fact that it was some really really amazing scientists who worked really hard to mm-hmm. very very rapidly produce a vaccine that gave us all, like, our normal lives back, which was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the women who worked on it just got the Nobel Prize, which was fantastic.
0: Wow. Um, Just a quick one on designer babies. Oh, yeah. Like, I want to know about that. I want to know, is it ethical? Is it possible? Um,
1: It is neither ethical nor fully possible um, so have you ever seen the film Gattaca? do you know this yeah, one yeah it's class. great yeah 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 it's wonderful and I mean I suppose that's I like that film so for anyone who doesn't know it's, um, it's basically set in a future time mm-hmm. where designer babies are totally possible but it's you,
0: classism at a genetic level
1: yeah 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 you get cl- genetic racism essentially yeah. or whatever but um, one of the things... So there's lots of parts that I think that are really quite realistic. And one of the things that's really quite realistic in that is, like, even though you pay for all of this, you don't always get what you expected. And mm-hmm. so you have the guy who was the natural child. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who is motivated and works hard and does everything. And you've got somebody else who has all the genes for everything, apparently. But either suffer as an accident in their life or just not that into it or whatever. And that's part of it. So, and another aspect of it is most of the interesting stuff um, genetically is really, really complex. So, you know, there's not just one gene or three letters in the middle of one gene that you can change to change the outcome. You'd be talking about 200 different things and each of them having a really incremental effect. And um, even still, we do not that doesn't explain the whole thing. And like... And then, you know, when you get into things like personality traits and abilities and intelligence, Mm -hmm. there's lots of evidence that there are genetic factors that affect intelligence, but we don't know what all of them are and they don't And, you know, when I say this, the racists get happy because they Mm -hmm. go, oh, just genetic factors for intelligence like mine. And, uh, you know, they get all happy that they are somehow genetically superior and all of this. But, you know, um, there are genetic factors that affect intelligence and all kinds of other traits. We don't see them racially divided at Mm -hmm. all. Um, But, uh, yeah, so it's it's a really complex, messy job. Like, you'd have to edit so many things and we don't know what they are. And even still, when you have the genetic factors even if you had the genetic factors in place, um, they increase the tendency for something. They don't dictate the yeah. outcome. So you won't even necessarily get the, the outcome, even if it were at some point considered ethical.
0: And is there even an ethical approach whereby, like, two parents are having a child, and they're like, one of us... Huntington's disease or yeah. something. Like, yeah, so I, I don't... I've got this... What is it called? Genetic counselling? where two parents are advised maybe you shouldn't have kids because we think your kid might be very sick for those people to go there's another route
1: yeah so that would be considered like the only kind of ethic well I consider that an ethical um, situation to do it but it wouldn't necessarily have to be editing and you might not necessarily call it a designer baby you could do what I think they call um, so a a couple in that situation would probably go through IVF rather Mm -hmm. than a fully natural route and then you could have multiple embryos, and instead of oh, editing okay. an embryo to be a certain way, you could select an embryo that doesn't have a specific thing. So,
0: and is that possible now? Yes. Wow.
1: Yep. So you can test. Um, so you, the embryo can be a few cells big, and you can test the DNA. And you can, when it's something like Huntington's, it's actually very very clear because mm-hmm. um, in that case it is a single gene. And it's one of the rare cases where it's a single gene that definitely causes the disease. If you carry that gene, you do get the disease, unfortunately. Yeah. And um so that would be one where it would be very clear-cut as well. So and in that case you could say, you know, I'm not trying to decide everything about my baby, but you know, I don't want my baby to be sick, you know, and you're just choosing that they don't get this illness. That's the only thing you're choosing, which is a very different thing than trying to say I want my baby to be a super athlete and, mm. uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's a different, I think I feel like it's a different type of decision.
0: Hello. Hello. How are you? What's the crack? Hi. Um, if you had a clone of yourself, like up here in your house, um, same personality and everything, how would you treat it? Do you think you treat it ethically? Like, what do you want to say to it? I love it. Thank you. Where would you take it? Oh my God that's a that was worth it that was Um, I often think about this a lot like if I'm no but if I'm thinking about uh, like I'm always very hard on myself throughout my life I'm always very hard on myself and like I'm in my 30s now and I'd look back to like I was saying earlier like when I was I was like 22 making horse outside and I'd love to no um I would like to, me now, like get into a time machine and go back to me when I'm 22 and give myself a big hug and go, do you know what, you're not so bad. And then Um. I'd think, nah, 22-year-old me wouldn't like that at all. (laughs) I'd get terrified. I'd be like, who the fuck are you? I'm you. And do you know what would happen? We'd end up trying to have sex with each other. (laughs) Because that's just what lads would do. I'd be like... Me at that age would go to 22 year old me, and 22 year old me would I'd be like, All right, Grand, I'm dealing with it. You're from the future. Okay, horse. I did it, 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 Christmas number two, really, was it? Fucking great. What does your dick look like now?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you any grey pubes? I do have, but nine. <laughs> but that wasn't your question. Um, do you know That's a fucking brilliant question, that is. That is a fantastic question, and i tell you why. When I'm thinking about. Um, how I manage my mental health, right? So a huge thing about mental health is if you're, when you're getting depression, anxiety, and you think of the the voice inside your own head, especially anxiety, right? It's really critical. Like, you're fucking useless, you're weak, you're pathetic, that's the inside, and then you feel these horrible things. And I always say to myself, would I say that to my best friend? You know, like if I get social anxiety, I'm afraid to go out. My inner voice will say, you pathetic, useless piece of fucking shit. You can't even go out. And that, that, then I have depression Mm -hmm. after that. You know what I mean? If my friend came to me and said, I'm scared of going out to the pub, I wouldn't in a million years would I say to them, you useless, pathetic cunt. I go, oh my God, how can I help you with that? I'd listen to him. So if I had a clone of me up in my attic, locked into my attic that's what I'd be doing I'd be having that trying to have that self-compassionate you'd relationship you'd lock them
1: in the attic I know
0: they'd have, <laughs> so it wouldn't work because they'd have worse mental health problems than me because <laughs> they're locked in the attic actually that's a tough one that's a tough one we'd have to live parallel lives I don't think I could use the, the me locked in the attic as as ba-
1: you being ethical yeah imagine that yourself. imagine
0: me me locked in the attic and then I walk in and it's like yeah I've got bad anxiety today I'm being very hard on myself <laughs> yeah, I'm being real hard on myself. I'm scared to go to the pub. Can you <laughs> I mean, can you talk to me about it? And then and then attic me is like you're an, no, an asshole. You me in, I'm in a fucking cage of bigger issues. Can I have a nappy? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> any other questions? Because that that one that's very platonic. I like that. That's real Plato's cave shit. Fair play for that question. Somebody in the front yonder.
1: Um, I have a question for Eva, just because I'm really interested in what it is that you do. Um, cool. Was there a piece of research that you were either involved in or that you read that fundamentally changed your outlook or your career? Was there something that you came across like that? Uh, I suppose, yeah, loads of things. Um, so there's actually, okay, lots of different things, but um, one that sticks with me is actually uh, possibly one of the most mundane in the sense that it's probably a piece of genetics knowledge that a lot of people know, if not everybody, and one that I had certainly known for a long time before it suddenly blew my mind in a different way. To the point that I remember where I was standing and who I was talking to when it happened. Um, And that's just that, you know, so you get your DNA from your parents, everybody Mm -hmm. knows that. And they got it from their parents, everybody knows that. And the way that DNA is copied is, you know, you've got the double helix, which is the two strands. And so they pull apart, and each strand acts as a template for for half, and that's how you now have two. So the old stuff touches the new every time. And so basically, every cell in everybody's body has an unbroken physical chain of contact, direct contact to everything that ever lived and the origins of life. Fuck. Yeah. That's exactly the reaction I had.
0: <laughs> that is insane. Oh, my God. Yeah. And again, I'm going to say something mad, unfortunately, but it is relevant. <laughs> Highly relevant. Um, I, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago on a podcast, but I, I was meditating a lot for a while, and I used to meditate by a river. And one time I'd gotten into meditation so much that when I came out of it, the first thing I saw was a nettle and I was overcome with a sense that it was like a sibling.
1: Oh.
0: I know it's, it's not the same as like a <laughs> professor and years and years of research and work, but I was astonished with that feeling, how much love and empathy, it was more than love and empathy, it was a slight realisation that me and that nettle, it's like, we're the same, me and you. And then I came out of it and I was back in the real world. But it made sense. It and then you backed it up with science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there
1: are genes that are practically identical, actually. There are some. There's with, still all, some with, with, everything. with everything that's gone on and all the amount of time that's passed, there are still some genes that are practically identical between us and plants.
0: Yeah. And what, like, this is the question I always ask scientists. At what point do you, do you ever start going, oh, fuck, there might be God? Uh, me, no do. Brilliant. Do you think when that happens you kind of stop being a scientist?
1: No, I don't know. I mean, I think... um, So for whatever reason, more physicists believe in God than biologists. Really? I don't know why. I think maybe the cosmos blows their mind. Uh, But... um, You know, when it comes to any kind of natural life, um, I don't feel any need to invoke anything supernatural. Or a
0: creator, or a designer.
1: No, quite the opposite. I get absolute, I find it so fascinating and endlessly interesting to the point that I've been spending my whole career looking at the processes of evolution and how we can actually trace it. And you can see it's always different versions of the same thing. Like it's the same processes just happening. Um, you know, you've got mutation and selection essentially. You know, change happens, and some of them survive, and some of them don't. And these little basic things produce these enormous uh, diversity of life and extraordinary adaptations, like the fantastic feather displays of a bird, the you know, the beautiful displays and the perfumes of a flower that attracts that bird to come and drink there, and you know, all of that. And it's, yeah, it's mad. Mm.
0: I could literally just chat for ages with you <laughs> forever. Um,
1: oh, that's about the nicest compliment I ever got. <laughs> um,
0: unfortunately, we're at curfew. Um, and, I ha- and you have buses. I know. I'd, I'd be like, I'd stay here forever chatting. Um, Aoife MacLeisett, Professor Aoife MacLeisett, thank, thank, you. thank you so much thank you. for a wonderful night. <laughs> thank you. That, was, that was an absolutely magnificent chat. And thank you so much to Professor Eva MacLeisett for that. I'll catch you next week. With a hot take. In the meantime, rub a dog. Wink at a swan. Slow blink at a cat. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.